With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. What a great podcast with Annie Duke, professional poker player, but also the author of a great, great brand new book, How to Decide, and she gives simple tools for making better choices. She's been on the podcast before, about two years ago, where we talked about her other book, Thinking in Probabilities. But this book, How to Decide, it's so good. Like, let's say you're trying to decide between five different businesses you want to start or five different jobs you want to take or five different colleges you want to go to or things you want to study, people you want to date. This is such a great book for figuring out how to reduce the risk in decision-making, how to overcome the possible cognitive biases. It's basically the meta skill of how to decide in any domain you want to get better at. What I loved about this podcast was we started talking just conversation and then Jay hit the record button and we're just talking all over the place about a a billion different things, all valuable, all things that I learned from, so many interesting stories and a lot of knowledge learned, plus some really concrete tools for making decisions. So here we go, Annie Duke. So there's signposting and there's sort of deadline setting. So it a little bit depends on how much you're deciding behind the veil of ignorance. So let's say that you kind of know everything there is to know about the environment. So you're, you're flipping coins. You can basically just decide after a certain number of flips, I'm going to know what I need to know and I'll stop. Yeah. Right. Because you, you know what the volatility of the environment is already. So you can basically say, if I flip a coin X number of times, then I'll know what the heads or tails ratio is. I'll know how the coin is weighted and then I'll be able to tell what I'm supposed to do. So there's, if you have a lot of information about something, you can just set a quitting deadline. After this point, I will quit. Right. Right. That, that, that involves an environment where you very much understand the probabilities of the possible outcomes. Exactly. So then if you can't do that, you would do signposting, which is to say, if I get certain information back, then I will exit. Basically, it's setting up an exit plan. Let's make it simple. You're buying a stock. You've made explicit what your implicit assumptions are, what the inputs are into buying that that have to do with, you know, something like how many widgets are they going to make or what is the macro environment going to look like? And then you can signpost it, which is essentially if these things change in the environment or if an assumption that I have turns out not to be true, and this is how I would know that, then it doesn't matter whether I'm winning or losing in the investment, I'll exit. Yeah, no, that's interesting. So, uh, you know, I've been a day trader and a hedge fund manager, so I call that a story stop, where if the story changes, then I stop out. A lot of people use, you know, loss stops, where if I lose X percentage of money, then I stop out. But you know, just I've written software and I don't know of anyone else who's done this. Statistically, price stops never work. 
There's not a single trading system where price stops actually make you more money with less volatility or even have less volatility. Price stops always have more volatility, oddly, because you lose a lot more and your, your P&L goes down a lot more easily. Yeah, of course, because the issue is that you should be trading theoretically if you're omniscient and you had unlimited computing power then every second that you held a stock, you would be thinking about it as a new buy order. Even without uh, omniscience right. and computer, that's how you should think about it. Right, stock. except yes. that we can't, you can't stop and evaluate your portfolio every minute, right? And say, would I buy this this second? Would I buy this this second? Would I buy this this second? That's what I'm saying. So you need to have some, you know, you could do it at the end of the day, for example. You could do it. All right. That's all I'm saying. So you would want to approach it. The problem is that people don't approach those the same way. They think about it as, should I sell this? They don't think about it as, would I buy this right now, today? Right. And you're right. The very important question is, would I buy this right now, uh, right. given everything? And or like, and that's or, what a story, that's what you're saying. That's what a story stop or signposting does for you, is it tells you what the conditions would have to, are, uh, would be, why, why did you invest in the first place? And what are the things that would change in the world that would make it that you would not make, do this investment as a new investment? And you do that, that work kind of in advance so that you sort of lose the sunk cost issue and the endowment issue. That's why the story stop is really good because it reframes it as a new buy order. That yeah. kind of automatically reframes it that way. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's interesting because like one time, and this is just a, a quick story. One time I started a, a business, it was going to be a dating site based on Twitter. So it was my algorithm that I wrote kind of analyzed people's tweets and sort of tried to determine compatibility. And I raised a million dollars in the first round, uh, built the site, uh, got signups. And then the morning after the day that all the money came in, I woke up shaking. Like I had this enormous feeling this business wasn't going to work out. And a year later, I would be on the phone with everybody explaining why they lost their money and blah, blah, blah. And so I just wired everyone's money back and instantly shut down the business. And of course, who knows in retrospect whether I made the right decision or not. But sometimes too, it's just part of its experience, part of it's some kind of gut or intuition. Part of it might be some bias that I was experiencing or some fear. But sometimes you just have to quit even, you know, like either the story stop is when things are going negative. Sometimes you also have, there has to be signposting somehow when things are going positive. You're in an infinite game with imperfect information and you just have to have ways of navigating that as well on the upside. That's why the signposting actually works. If these signposts were to occur, regardless of whether I'm winning or losing, then I will stop. Yeah. And you can figure out whatever those signposts are, right? So it's trying to kind of disconnect you from this kind of path dependence of our decision-making gets really distorted depending on the path that we're taking. So I don't want to say winning or losing kind of in absence of the path because we interpret that differently depending on what our recent path is. Have we, do we have an upward slope or a downward slope that we've just been experiencing, right? And essentially what happens, and you can see this like across retail investors, is a very robust finding. Retail investors will put in stop-loss orders and they'll just blow by them. But then they'll also put in takedown orders. Like as soon as you earned a certain amount on a stock, that's the moment that you're going to buy. So they have those orders as well and they sell too early. So you have both problems happening. So those in combination obviously are a really bad combo. The reason that they're doing it, obviously, that brokers or, or financial advisors will encourage that is because retail investors are particularly susceptible 
to the issues of how do you make decisions when you're losing versus when you're winning. And so they're trying to sort of give them some kind of pre-commitment contracts in order to hold their feet to the fire. The problem is that they blow through them. Basically, they sell too early on the winners and they sell too late on the losers. What signposting can help you do is kind of disconnect from that. It's just like, if these things are true of the world, this is what you're going to do. Yeah, and it's interesting. Warren Buffett has a a famous quote about not selling your winners, which is if you have Michael Jordan on your team, you don't trade him away just because he's gotten better. Um, But, you know, also in a lot of what you're saying, you have to um, take into account the agendas of the other parties involved. Like brokers have, they want you to sell and buy new things because they churn and they make commissions. Well, that's why I switched it to the financial advisor, which is a little different. Yeah, yeah. uh, Yeah, so, so obviously you need to make sure incentives are aligned. Finance is a great domain because there is kind of probabilities and there is kind of sort of one zero decisions, but it's also interesting on domains where there are other factors like, like boredom or lifestyle or when, you know, you address lifestyle in this book, but I often find the, the world's very complicated on quitting because no one really has good experience with quitting and it's not, oh, it's often yeah. not statistical. So I actually think it's interesting because I think that we all have a lot of experience with quitting. It's just that we view it through such a negative frame. Show me the aphorism, which is like, quitting's really good. They're all things like, well, you have the American can-do spirit. You have winners never quit and quitters never win. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. You know, it's like everything is around this really negative connotation around quitting. And so when it comes to kind of like big things, I think that we don't, we don't do it very much. And it's too bad because obviously grit and sticking to things is really, really important. It's a great virtue to have grit and to be able to power your way through the hard stuff in order to get to the good stuff. There's no question. You can't be successful without that. The problem is how do you decide what to be gritty about? And then how do you actually execute on the things that you're being gritty about in a really A-plus, like, world-class way? And the way that you do that is through quitting. And the problem is that we don't, I, I think that we don't think about quitting through that frame of experimentation. This is one of the best ways to uh, gather information from the world that's really necessary instead of fooling yourself that you can analyze the situation and actually find out your answer. So an example is obviously I know you're, you're, you're a comedian. Until you actually get up in front of the audience and you try the joke out, it's just really hard to know if it's going to land. You can do the thought experiment. You can kind of think through it. You can sort of know how you're supposed to construct a joke. But until you try it, you can't really find out the information. So you need to just get quickly to the trying And then if it doesn't work, you have to quit. You have to say, I'm not doing that joke anymore. I'm going to do another one or I'm going to prune it or I'm going to change it a little bit. Right, you have to experiment. There's no way to know one time, but you have to adjust the experiment. Right, and it's like, what do we think of as quitting? It's not just like I quit my job, which sometimes is really good, by the way. I mean, I play tennis. It's like I tried a shot and it didn't work out. And so I'm not going to do that again. Or it didn't work out, but I am going to try that again. I didn't execute on it well, but it was actually a really good idea. It would have worked. I mean, it's all this experimentation is really a form of quitting. Science is a form of quitting. It, it's so funny because the, the first chapter of my book, Skip the Line, is I re- essentially replace the 10,000-hour rule with what I call the 10,000-experiment rule because experiments really are the key to learning, not 
repetition unless it's just you're trying to memorize lists of numbers or something, some simple domain. You know, and again, the real world is so much more complicated that a lot of experimentation is required to actually learn things that are useful in society. That's exactly right. And you can't be really experimental in your choices if you're not willing to quit. And aside from because otherwise you'll just stick to stuff that you shouldn't. But the other problem is that you can't experiment enough if you're not willing to quit. Because if you enter into a decision thinking, I need to be 90% sure this is going to work, which is how a lot of us are, right? You have to be 90% sure it's going to work because this is like a, a final decision. Like this is final sale. I'm not going to return it. I can't return it. Then you're going to get into these like analysis loops that aren't even going to get you the information that you want when you should actually just be kind of like moving fast and breaking things, as they say in the Valley, you're back, you're, you know, you're trying to figure out the answer prior to the doing. So unless you say, there's just a whole bunch of stuff I'm going to try. I'm going to quit all the stuff that doesn't work, figure out what it tells me about what I would want to try next. And I'm going to do a ton of that. Then you can't move fast enough to actually live an experimental life that's actually going to get you the answers that you need in order to build really good models of the world so that when you do actually enter into something that is high impact and incredibly hard to reverse, it's going to be a big cost in order to change it, that you're actually going to make really good decisions about those things. The simple thing is like dating versus marrying. Like you shouldn't spend a year trying to figure out who to go on a date with. You should just go on a date with somebody and you should go on a date with a lot of people. And you should have lots of dinners and you should talk to a whole bunch of different people. And because you can, you know, a date, you can quit it in the middle. You can say, I'm sorry, I'm not staying for dessert. This isn't going well. It's just go. But the marriage thing, that, that's what you're really trying to solve for. Is yeah. that at some point you're going to have to make a decision about who to marry. And there's a huge cost to unwinding that decision. It costs a lot to do it. Tell so you better have it. a really good model of yourself you, and what your preferences are. You have to have a really good model of other people really good model of what you want for yourself in the future. And all of those things are going to come through the doing, the moving fast for all the stuff that's going to like gather the information for you. That's going to allow you to build a good model when you actually have to get to that big decision. I mean, all of these are different angles on just the central concept of learning. Yep. Whether it's how to decide or thinking in probabilities or quitting or experimenting or the 10,000 hour rule. This is just all different ways to kind of build this model of the world. And it's interesting because, you know, even in neuroscience, the brain does, is not really that good at making decisions. It's actions precede decisions often where you're already acting in terms of that you've made the decision and then your brain says, okay, I'm going to make this decision. And so right. it's, it's interesting to tie that in as well, particularly with the quitting, I think. Well, I think that that's why you have to have this intentional, people have to develop this mental model. And I think that people don't, you know, I think this is the big downside of something like 10,000 hours, right? Is that it puts that doing something for a long time, you know, in this kind of placeholder of such a virtue. And you forget that the opposite of that virtue is also a virtue because the way, you know, we think in dichotomies, we think in opposition, right? So the idea that you might do something for a second and then immediately abandon it, you know, well, then I won't be successful. Then you're going to call me a failure, you know, so on and so forth. And so I think that we need to develop this mental model. We have to wrap it into our decision-making so that when we are thinking through problems, 
the way that we're approaching the problem just becomes different. So the, the avenues that open up in terms of the types of decisions that might be available to us, the types of actions that might automatically, whether it's in that more intuitively, how am I thinking about this decision, right? Which is what we want to change because it's just like habits. We can get those things running more automatically, right? Because you can examine your decision-making in a really intentional way in the same way that you examine habits in a really intentional way. And you can say, I want to change that habit and I want to let that habit continue to run kind of under the surface, you know, and then you have to practice with the new habit in order to get that to be something that then becomes automatic after you get enough iterations on it. And I think you can do the same thing with your decisions and what, what kind of mental models are you, are you viewing problems through? Because we're doing that anyway, right? I mean, we're, 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 we're all doing that anyway. So you can be intentional about your mental models just in the same way that you can be intentional about your habits. It's so important because I'm assuming you and I both know many people who spend 20 years doing something, but they never seem to get better. 20 years playing chess, 20 years investing, 20 years, you know, starting businesses, 20 years doing comedy, you know, a lot of people, but why don't they get better? I think it's because they don't have this model of constant experimentation. So for instance, if I, I mean, I did comedy last night, if I go out and perform, I always make sure my model for this is at least 20% of my set has to be an experiment. So this way I know through hell or high water, I'm going to always be at least increasing my comfort zone. I might not be getting better, but I'm at least increasing my comfort zone. And so at some point you, you have to get better if you keep doing this in an activity that's worthwhile. Yeah, I think I think one of the ways to think about it, I had a really great conversation with Michael Mobison, who's you know obviously super fabulous and everybody should read everything he's ever written he was talking about this framework to think about the difference between explore and exploit. You can imagine this in terms of kind of, you know, as you try to figure out what happens to an IBM in the 1980s when Microsoft or Apple come in, right? So explore versus exploit is essentially what you just talked about. Exploit is, these are things that I know work for me. And so I'm going to exploit those things. I'm going to exploit those strategies. This is, I'm going to sort of stick to those things. You can think about it as like, I like this restaurant. And I know the food's always consistent. It's always good. So that's the place I'm going to go. Explore is, well, what are the new things I could try? What are the different ways that I could look at the world? What are the innovative things that I could be doing? Is there something that I'm missing? You know, that that kind of stuff. So that would be like going to a new restaurant. Or in your case, 80% of your set is stuff that you've tried before that you know people are going to laugh at. You're exploiting that. Not exploiting in a bad word way, but in more of a game theoretical way, right? Like you're doing something that you know you can take to the bank. And then 20% of it is explorative. Let me, let me sort of poke around and kind of see what's going on. So you want to try to get that right balance, right? So you can think about like an IBM versus a Microsoft or an Apple in the 1980s. What happens when companies get kind of big and bloated is that they end up completely in the exploit mode. We have certain customers. We, we have a certain right. product. We have certain strategies. We know that they've worked in the past and we're just going to continue to exploit those things. And of course, startups by definition are all explore. Yeah. That's just definitionally true. So, so they're going to find the new stuff that's better. You know, the way to take a business that was traditionally being delivered in a certain way and turn it into a SaaS play or, you know, whatever, right? And then we're, we're going to do something better because they're in that explore and they don't, they don't have an investment in the infrastructure uh, that exploits a certain avenue, that the people that are working for them are, are very averse to any kind of failure. So they don't want to experiment because 
there's this really interesting interaction that you can think about. So let's say that you're exploiting a strategy. In other words, you're doing things the way that things have always been done. Particularly, you're getting consensus on that. And you're working in a, in a company and you have a bad outcome from that. People will be like, oh, that's bad luck. But if you are in explore mode and you fail, then you're an idiot. Then your job's on the line. Then you get fired. Right. And believe me, whether it's poker or investing, but particularly comedy, you're in front of a room full of strangers, plus some people who know you, like the people who, who brought you in to do the set, for instance, that you need their respect. You feel humiliated or ashamed in real time, even if you're planning to do this explore, exploit strategy. But what, what you're saying about IBM reminds me of Clayton Christensen's theories of disruption. It's almost like uh, explore is you have to consciously do self-disruption before other companies do it. Like, That's right. You know, Microsoft and Apple both successfully disrupted IBM's business model by coming in either cheaper or more nimble or whatever, you know, these classic disruption theories. So it's interesting, you know, like with, with poker, for instance, you could say, all right, a beginning player play just, you know, you know, high pairs or combinations of two, you know, face cards and don't do anything else. But then you still have to explore, like, as you get better and better, as you know, of course, you know, you're going to bluff, you're going to try bluffing in these certain situations. You have to start uh, doing the explore. So I actually, I have a great story about that. It's totally true. You're dead on. So when I, when I very first started playing, this is before, this is, even this predates my becoming a professional player. I was a poor graduate student living on a stipend, $13,000 a year. That's what I was living on. And uh, so I couldn't afford like, there were, there were no like vacations in my, in my budget. So my brother was already a successful player. So he, he flew me out to Las Vegas during the world series of poker to like have a vacation, you know, cause I was like a poor starving student. So I went out and prior to that, I had watched him play a little bit, but I was sitting right behind him where I could see his whole cards. But when you're playing in the world series of poker, there, there's like a, a rope set up like a rail. And so, so you can't actually get close. And, you know, unlike watching poker on TV, watching poker in person is actually super boring because you can't see anybody's cards. So it's, it's one of the more boring activities. Like when I was sitting behind my brother, I could kind of be in his position and that made it quite interesting to kind of try to figure out what his choices were. But now it was really boring for me. Um, and I also don't like negative EV propositions. So I, I wasn't like, you know, playing craps or something like that. Right. Cause I've, I've no interest in just like grinding out a loss. So, um, I was bored. So we went to the coffee shop in, in, at the time, in Binion's Horseshoe, which was like down in the basement at the time. This was still owned by the Binions. And they also had a ranch up in Montana where they got their meat from. And at the time I was not a vegan, which I am now. I, I ate meat then. And they had a $1.99 steak special. So if you went in after midnight, you could get like a big, it was like a 12 ounce, like Kansas City <laughs> cut steak with like a potato, a roll, salad, vegetable. Like it was a great deal for someone like me. So my brother and I were there after midnight eating and I'm complaining to him that I'm like super bored. So he says to me, well, you, you know, you obviously know the rules of the game. You sat behind me and watched me play. Like, why don't you just go play poker? Uh, And he handed me $300 and then he took out a napkin and a Kino crayon. 
And he said, Annie, here are the hands you're allowed to play. And he wrote them down on this napkin. It was like aces, kings, queens through, I think he let, was letting me play sixes. That, that's a bit daring, but yeah, but go ahead. It was limit though. It was limit poker. It yeah. wasn't no limit. So uh, no limit. I would not allow a beginner to play sixes, but, yeah. but it was limit. So I, you know, there was only so much that I could impale myself on other people's chips. Uh, and then I think he had uh, ace, king, ace, queen, ace, jack. I think king, queen, king, jack. I think that was kind of like the list, as I recall. So that was a pretty narrow set of hands. Uh, and I went off to the Fremont, which was like across the street from Binion's. I, like the, the marquee restaurant in the Fremont was a Carl's Jr. It was like really something. Um, and I went and played in this, uh, I think it was like a dollar to three game. And so I, ha- I just had my list, right? And so um, I was literally only entering pots with this list. So um, obviously there were people in that game who were playing hands that were very far off the list. They were totally not on the list at all. But, you know, I just sort of kept playing with my list and I did pretty well with the list, you know, because I, I was an experienced player and I think I won $300, which was amazing, right? Like that was a lot of money to me back then. But then I still had this list and I, pl- I played for like another year and I kept seeing people play hands that were off the list. And there were particular circumstances in, under which they were very likely to play off list hands, like when they were closer to the button, when they were in the blinds, they were definitely calling with hands that were definitely off the list. And um, kind of in this explore exploit, like I was just so endowed to this list. Like I was so sure, like my brother had given me a list, like it was like Moses coming down from the Mount with like the 10 commandments that clearly if people were playing hands that were not on this list, they must've been wrong. Now I wasn't playing every day, right? Cause I'm still only playing occasionally. This was like right before I became, uh, before I started playing for real, but it didn't occur to me. It was like a year that I was playing where all these people were doing things off list. And in in my head, I was just thinking, oh, those people are such idiots. Like, why would they play off list? And I think finally what happened was somebody who I really believed to be a good player. I saw them like playing these hands that were way off the list. And in particular, you know, kind of starting to notice, I started getting enough experience that I noticed that there were circumstances under which they were doing that. And it finally occurred to me to ask the person who made the list, hey, So I'm seeing people play, like they'll be in the blind and someone will raise and they'll call like a six, seven, which is like not on your list. And I don't, I don't understand what's going on. And of course he said, well, Annie, what's going on is they're getting three and a half to one. Like, of course they're, they're playing the six, seven. And then he pauses and goes, oh yeah. So let me explain. I gave you that list because you were a beginner. And so I didn't want you doing anything nutty. I just wanted, wanted to make sure that you were playing the best hand because there was no way for you to understand how you might play a hand that was worse or like what the value of a hand was. Please throw that list out. <laughs> like don't use the list anymore. <laughs> you obviously know enough about it, but I, you know, it's like I, I stuck to that list so long because I didn't understand, like I didn't quite, get, you know, I didn't get it. Well, what, what's so fascinating about that story, and this is related to all, all of this, you know, all of this aspects of learning something that's something that's worth learning is that what happened was is that you expanded the awareness of variables in the domain. So right. at first, the only variable you had was everybody gets two cards, which ones should you play? The variable is whether you play a, a hand or not. But then there's variables like, you know, what your position is at the table, how many people are at the table, what was the betting action beforehand, uh, how many people are, you know, still have to bet. Uh, so the variables expand. It's like, it's like investing, you know, you start off like, is this a good company or a bad company? But then you realize there's like a thousand other variables and, and that's why you could even write software for, for investing. Or, 
comedy, you know, is the audience all Democrat? Is the audience all Republican? Is, are there five people in the audience or are there a thousand people in the audience? Like there, there's, you know, does the mic work? Is the stage big or is the stage small? Like you start to get, there's the, it's some people call them subtleties, but it's really just, you become aware of the importance of more and more variables. And that allows you to, you know, build a better multi-factor model that you're making decisions on, whether it's a, to quit or to play or to whatever. It's interesting, the relationship between variable awareness and learning. Uh, I haven't yeah. thought about that before. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's one of the things that I say about poker and most activities is that when you approach them, they can appear quite simple. And then, you know, as you get more deeply into it, as you learn more about it, it start, you know, it's like an onion, you know, and you're peeling away the layers and you think, oh, I've peeled this layer away. That will be the end of it. And then there's another layer and you're like, oh, wait, no, there's more. <laughs> and then, it's like the Ginsu knife. No, wait, there's more. Um, and I think those are actually the most interesting activities to engage in. I think it's why tic-tac-toe is so boring because yeah. there's just not a, there's not a lot of layer to it. It's like, it's just a negative feedback game. I can neutralize any move that you make and we're going to tie every single time. And there's just not much more to it. Like we don't, there's not a lot to understand about that game. Whereas, you know, more complicated games are just much more interesting where the game is so complicated that you can't ever actually properly model it. Right. Well, you know, that, that's interesting too, because, um, you know, so what makes a game or an activity interesting? And I, I had this discussion a long time ago with somebody where, so we just looked at it horizontally, like how many additional variables are. So, so ex, an expert or master level person would understand, okay, there's a hundred variables and a beginner would just say, no, there's just one variable. But then there's an, uh, like a vertical way to look at it, which is how many levels of skill are there where if you're at level X, you're one standard deviation above level X minus one. So you could win two out of three games against uh, level X minus one. So for instance, tennis, there might be, or chess or poker, there might be 20 to 30 levels of skill. Right. Whereas tic-tac-toe, there's probably two levels of skill. Yeah, there's three. like seven-year-old and everybody else. Right. And investing also, like investing is like a little different because it's, it's a, there is much more imperfect information in the world uh, about investments and entrepreneurship. Um, but it's, it's still, you could argue with investing, it's a, it's a, it's a defined enough domain that there's 20 or 30 levels of skill. But then, and then and you talk about this and how to decide, your book, How to Decide, uh, dating and marriage. And you just re referenced, you know, dating and marriage. There's probably a lot more levels of skill because it is so insanely imperfect that there's, you, you say there's no way to model poker and that's probably correct, but you could at least think about how to model it. Whereas dating would be almost, you know, infinitely complicated to model by a computer. Like, is this the right match for me? Right. Well, computers are getting okay at modeling poker. I think they would get okay at modeling dating. It's, I'm, I'm saying like a human being, it's too complicated for a human being to model it, right? Like without any computational help, right? We just don't have the... Yeah. But like po po even poker though, like chess, a computer is significantly better than the best human. Po there's no poker computer that's better than the best poker players. Not, not, in a, not in a no limit multiplayer game. That's true. They're, get, they're getting a lot better though. Yeah. You know, in the same way that obviously like uh, AlphaGo is better than Big Blue, right? It's like the, the 
way that the, those computers are learning is better. But those are pretty constrained environments. Yeah, Go, Go is a great example where Go was a domain where it, it was thought to be so infinitely complicated, you would never have a computer solve it. You know, even after chess was quote unquote solved, people never figured that Go would be solved. And yet uh, using the deep learning techniques that um, Google did, uh, AlphaGo, uh, it, was a, it was like a surprise out of nowhere, like in the Go world that AlphaGo comes along and just crushes the, the world champion. Yeah, but, so, but, but, but it's also a game of perfect information too. That, yeah, so what I, was gonna, what I was gonna say about that is that I think that we need to distinguish computers are much better at complicated problems, not complex problems. So complicated problems are what you just said, right? Like uh, you have perfect information and a, and, a, and a very, very limited, super limited um, influence of luck. There's some luck in a game like chess. Like from my perspective, if I make a particular move that's exploitable and my opponent doesn't see that, that, that they can exploit it, that's, that's luck to me, right? There's a little, there's some luck in chess. Um, but it's not, it's not a strong influence. Like nobody's rolling dice and, you know, seven, yeah. sorry, whatever you get checkmate. So theoretically there's no luck in, in, in chess. It's just there's right. luck on this, on what you might miss because of the skill level, but there's exactly. no. And that there's some hidden information. Like, I don't know what opening you were just reading about. I don't know what happened in your last game, you know, but it's minor comparatively. So, so what that means is that, um, essentially what you can do is you can go from a tic-tac-toe model. And then you can complicate the game, which just means building out more complicated decision trees, right? That there's more, there's more branches. You have to go deeper into the decision tree in order to be able to, you know, the farther ahead you can see, the better off you're going to be. If you could see all the way to the end of the game, obviously you would be better off. Um, and, you know, you can go tic-tac-toe, then checkers, then chess, then go, right? In terms of what is, how complicated are those trees? But they're... That's really a computational problem. I mean, this was John von Neumann's point in the first place about chess, is that that's a computational power issue, right? How, can, do you have the computational power to be able to go that deep into the tree? What, when you get complex is when you include, when you start to uh, introduce both an element of luck, but also you force people to decide behind the veil of ignorance. In other words, they just are lacking information. So you can see the transition between a game like chess and a game like poker is, would be backgammon. So backgammon, you have perfect information, but obviously there's an element of luck. It's stochastic, but computers can be very, very good at that because you, they still have perfect information. Right, and even, even AlphaGo, even though you have perfect information, is a, it makes decisions statistically unlike chess, which... Um, you know, still looks down the tree as far as possible. And, uh, you know, it doesn't use as much statistics. So, so AlphaGo, in, in an interesting way, it almost views Go as an, a game of imperfect information, the way it uses statistics. By the way, Backgammon and also Othello, similar. There's no luck factor in Othello. There's a luck factor in Backgammon. The programs to, quote unquote, solve them, to be the world champion, were developed much earlier than the programs to, to solve chess because of these stochastic or statistical processes that similar to how AlphaGo uses it in a much more advanced way. Right. I worked on actually what became Deep Blue and was very familiar with 
at least chess software, Othello software, backgammon software, Hans Berliner solved backgammon, like I think early 90s. It's just, it's interesting. But, but investing also, you can use the same techniques that AlphaGo uses to build quantitative trading programs. Yes, and, and you can outperform a human, but you haven't solved the game. I mean, right. I think that that's what's key is that something like chess is solvable. Something like poker isn't solvable, at least not in the way that we understand it, right? Because of the hidden information problem. But if you mean I can solve the game out till the end, the, till the last move, right? That it's just a, it's a, it's essentially just an equation. That doesn't mean that you can't po- that that computers can't get much better than human beings at those things. Um, of course they can. We know they can. But particularly when you talk about you know quantitative trading, you still need a human being to sort of be looking at it. And there's a lot of reasons for that because human beings, you know, what, what's happening with a lot of these deep learning and Gary Marcus is, is someone who everybody should read because he's a real contrarian on kind of deep learning and how great it is. You know, the point that he makes is that human beings really approach information in a different way. So basically what we do is we, human beings sort of take what we know to be true about the world and we can apply it to something and learn about it in one trial, which computers cannot do yet. And that's a little bit more in my world, like the way that I would view intelligence. So I'll, I'll just like, I'll give you a quick example. Um, we know that, that when you uh, change something that would take it out of the center of the data set that the algorithm might be learning off of, uh, it really trips them up. So for example, if you put a cat in an astronaut suit and you ask a human being, what is that? They've, never seen it, they'll say it's a cat I mean, in an astronaut suit. And uh, deep learning will call it an astronaut, right? And you can see this all the time. Like if you, it, it, you can show a, a baseball glove that has foam on it and they'll call it cappuccino because that's the correlate for cappuccino, right? So this is a thing that, could, that, that algorithms can't do. If I, I'll ask you some questions about this. I'll ask you a few questions. So... I want you to imagine for a second, and this is Gary Marcus's, one of Gary Marcus's example. I want, I want you to imagine for a second, a blue cat that's bigger than a house. Okay. So you have that in your mind, Imagining. right? Yes. Now you've never seen that before, right? Never. You've never seen one of those. Okay. Uh, so would you be scared of it? Yeah, I'd be scared of anything that I've never seen before, pretty much. Right. 90% um, of the things I've never seen before, I'd be scared of. Do you think it would be loud? When it meowed, would it be loud? Uh, okay, if I had to make an assumption, I would say yes. Yeah. Uh, what would happen if it stepped on a car? I would have to, I don't know for sure, but I would have to imagine it would have at least make a, it would at least make a dent. Yeah, probably. Right. Exactly. Okay, so that's good. So let's hold that. Okay. If I say to you, Ellen called her grandmother on the phone. She didn't pick up. Who didn't pick up the phone? Her grandmother. Right. So now that's a really interesting one because it's completely ambiguous. So the only reason why you know it was her grandmother who did not pick up is because by having said Ellen called her grandmother on the phone, you, you understand as a human being that Ellen already has the phone to her ear. She has to. But it's not specifically stated in the uh, sentence that she has picked up the phone. You know things about the real world that in order for someone to call someone, they have to have picked the phone up. Right. Right. The other thing that you know is that if I say Ellen called her grandmother on the phone, that she's not standing on top of the phone. 
Right. Right. So you can see there's a lot of ambiguity in that sentence that you literally have not one second of problem understand, like parsing apart, right? So you, you understand those things much better. Here's, here's another example on the language side. If I said to you, the elephant was on the dog, what image comes to mind? An elephant killing a dog. Right. The dog's flat. So, and I'll give you another possibility. Uh, uh, how about a stuffed elephant? Oh, well then the dog is just playing with it. But here's the thing is that when I say the elephant is on the dog, you know, there's something weird. Right. You understand that there's something strange right. about that sentence. And here's, here's the last one that I'll say. By the way, a computer could tell you there's something strange, but, it, but I, I agree. It can't tell you what's happening. It can't tell you what's happening, right? So, so here's, here's my last example. You're looking at a table and there's only one object on the table. And I say to you, can you go pick up the red pencil that's on the table? In that particular case, what you know is that because I did not need to see red, say red, because there's only one pencil sitting on the table, that there, mu there must be something particular about the redness of that pencil, right? So it, it must be like either it's a red pencil or I've done something weird. I've just given you extra information for no reason because you can go pick up the object on the table, right? So this is one of the ways that in, that would be information theory that I can communicate to you important things about objects. So when I say a piece of information about something that's totally unnecessary, you as a human being understand that you're supposed to index onto that piece of information more than you otherwise would. So I, I can walk through all of these different things with you, right? These are all things that computers suck at. Well, well, but this is this is this is the argument really against the the singularity in, in computers in, in terms of like this idea that there might be consciousness or human intelligence. AlphaGo might be so far better than humans at the most complicated game on the planet, and yet it can't tell you if an apple tastes good or bad. Like right. computers are, you know, programmed for purposes and for one reason. So, and the other, the other issue here is, is that AlphaGo is almost infinitely scalable. So it can just play trillions of games against itself to build up its learning set and, and get better as a result. But it can't self-generate conversations with itself to, to learn new meaning like that will never happen. So that, that yeah. there's a big difference between deep learning and kind of human learning, which is, uh, which is what you're pointing out. And, and the, you know, the people who believe in a singularity sort of believe that computers will bridge the gap, but there's no evidence in the past 80 years uh, that there's no history of computers being able to bridge that gap at all. Right. And you know, with like with GPT three, like, again, I encourage people to go look at, you know, you can follow Gary Marcus on Twitter. Uh, you know, he, he broke it in two seconds, right? Like, what, when you ask it to just kind of generate some speech, it's fine. But when, as soon as you ask it, like, a question, it, it, it really falls apart. And, it, and it's for this simple reason, again, that just has to do with what is the knowledge that you're bringing to bear that, like, really means real intelligence. So if I tell you a story that just goes like this, um, uh, you know, James left the restaurant. I'm just going to tell a story. James left the restaurant and then he, he patted his front pocket and looked panicked and went back in and asked the wait staff if they had found a wallet. If I ask an algorithm like GP3, why did James pat his pocket? They, they, the, the answers they give are total nonsense. Whereas every human being knows that James patted his pocket in panic because his wallet was not there.
Right. But yeah, so this is this is why like I never I, I don't believe in deep learning or AI for any kind of, you know, human functions, just for very spe- specific domain specific functions. And even then it depends on the domain, but you know, uh games are perfect examples where it's a limited domain. Trading, I would consider actually yeah. a limited domain, although more complex rather than complicated. Um, so it's maybe a perhaps complex, almost going into a, a human area. But in general, and this this is the problem I have with like academic studies on things like anything relating to improvement or learning or or even grit. Like I love the book Grit. Angela Duckworth is a, a genius. I, I think very highly of her. But any academic studies about mindset or grit, I don't think really accurately reflects the real world, which is why I get nervous about any models for how to succeed at business or entrepreneurship, which are so much more complex than anything uh, a computer can model. And let let me just say, because I'm a huge fan of Angela's, Um, she's the first one to tell you that, you know, she, she wrote this book about grit and she found it, but she doesn't, she doesn't feel like that's translated into behavior. I mean, this is actually, this is what, what she's totally focused on now, right? It's like, how do you actually translate that into an improvement in behavior, kind of to your point, right? So she, she understands that. It's like, that, that's kind of part of the thing is that a lot of these things, it's like, well, we kind of know this is important. We know it helps, but that doesn't necessarily mean that people do it. It doesn't mean that we know how to teach people to do it. It doesn't mean that we know how to get people to actually perform better, even though we know this thing matters. And then you always kind of get down to this kind of core issue of, is it kind of an outcome or a correlate of a certain way that people naturally have an ability to think? Or is it something that we really actually know how to teach in order to improve human behavior? So that would be true even in terms of some of the mindset things, right? It's like, it it could be that if I just point out to you that, you know, you can improve at stuff, that that's enough for you. But I think it a little bit depends on the way that you kind of view the world. And we know that there are really big differences between people on things like the cognitive reflection test or active open-mindedness that really correlate to things like uh, belief in conspiracy theory, theories, for example, and success and that kind of stuff. And it, it doesn't necessarily, the problem is that it's still an open question of, can you improve people's performance in a consistent way on something like the cognitive reflection test? Or can you improve somebody's ability to become open-minded? My particular viewpoint is that, um, and I think actually, I, I just saw Angela talking and I think that she's, she's definitely thinking in this direction as well is that it's hard to do for an individual. This is, this is a, more of a group problem in the way, how are groups sort of supporting each other and what are the things that groups value? Um, and if you can kind of harness the power of tribe and make sure that tribe is actually moving you in the right direction, um, I think that then you can get a lot of movement, but there ha- just hasn't been a lot of sort of study on that, right? Like there's, there's not a lot of work that's done on that, but I think it's starting to happen. Well, well what do you mean? What do you mean by when you focus on tribe? So I think that, you know, I mean, that old thing of like, we are who we're hanging out with <laughs> really matters. Like, I'll actually give you an example. Katie Milkman, um, it, she has a book coming out in the spring and she, and I'm, I feel like I'm, so there's some really interesting work and I wish I could remember exactly who the researcher was, but I, I apologize for not citing, whoever it is, I apologize for not citing you and hopefully people will find their way to you. But um, uh, there was a particular researcher who, uh I think it was, they, they went to West Point 
and they they noticed that uh, I think it was like their brother went also. They might he might have even been a twin. Can't remember exactly, but they got in West Point. They divide you into different cohorts, um, and it's random assignment. And what they found was that one of the people who was in one cohort, like really, really performed amazing. And they, these were people who were sort of equally had done well, equally well in high school and whatnot. Um, and I think they were twins. Like I think it was sort of a weird natural experiment. Um, but I may be butchering this, and I just want to say that, like just for the record, That's for, okay. for the recording, anyway. I'm I may be butchering it. But anyway. So one person was in one cohort and they had done really well. And the, the other person was in a different cohort and they, they really did quite poorly comparatively. Um, and he got really obsessed with looking at that. And what, what he found was that uh, the cohort that, per, you know, the, that he had been put into, I think was just like a group of like A plus students just randomly. And they were all like really motivated and they wanted to do really well. And the group that his brother, I think, had been put into was quite poor. So, so how the group is thinking, right? What are the goals and the values of the group? Because we're so tribal by nature. I think that's the thing that can actually really increase performance. So anyway, he actually, so an interesting thing came from that, which is that he thought, well, okay, so now if you could take low performers and you could put them in high performing groups, maybe what you would find is that they would actually do better. That's kind of an interesting question, right? So he did that. He did that and what he found is they did worse. Okay, so that's weird, right? What they figured out, and then Katie Milkman subsequently did some similar research with retirement, was that you can't just take someone who's like a C student and stick them with A students because they feel like they can never get there. You have to get some B students in there as well so that they feel like there's a a bridge, that there's a way for them to get to the place that they want to go. That's related to, so Katie Milkman had done something where she was trying to encourage, she was thinking about that research, she was trying to encourage... um, uh, retirement uh, savings. And basically they would tell people who had very low retirement savings, hey, your coworker has already packed away, you know, 10 grand for retirement. And if you, if they were at zero, it actually caused them to, to save less. But if they said, hey, there's, you know, someone next to you has saved 1500 for retirement, like something that was a little bit closer then that got them to actually increase their retirement. So you, you have to make sure that the, that the group that you put someone in isn't too far away from what your performance is and that you have bridges to it. See, what's interesting is I do believe statistically that works, right? And so the, the challenge is, but I also believe that, um, and just this is just on my own anecdotal experience, is that you do perform better when you're in a group of high-performing people. So why does anecdotal experience sometimes go against what you're saying as, you know, proven in these st- to experiments and, and statistics and so on. I think then it's a mindset issue of, are you the sort of person who needs the B students in the middle? Or are you the sort of student who, who is learning and understand and has some sort of cognitive bias that you could skip needing the, that B student in there? For instance, when you were getting good at poker, did you need to, if you had just been thrown in a- after your beginner phase, if you had just been thrown in with, you know, all great professionals I bet you still would have done very well. I bet you would have improved very quickly. And I'm assuming even that's what actually happened to you. So that is what happened to me. But I think that there's a difference between are you viewing those people as teachers or are you viewing them as peers? Right. So that's a mindset thing. And by the way, it could be either way. So, So it just depends on mindset. Like, for instance, 
I'm extremely guilty of what is called, you know, Dunning-Kruger bias, like always thinking you better than you are, particularly when you're a beginner. And that's usually considered a bad thing, like a little knowledge, uh, you know, it's whatever they're saying is a little knowledge is a, a bad thing. But it always helped me because I would have the, I would have enough confidence to think, oh yeah, well, I could hang out with the best writers or the best investors or the best this, that, even if I wasn't, because I would have this Dunning-Kruger bias, which is this cognitive bias that makes me think I, I was better than I was. And I kind of would skip the, the having the, the B grade students in the middle. Yeah, well, I, I again, I, I think it's a little bit so. So I think it's a little bit whether you view them as mentors or as peers, depending on the activity, depending on whether there's particularly depending on whether there's money on the line. So as I was learning, if my choice was to play with those world class players, I would have gone broke right quick. Right. Right. But I viewed them as mentors and then I would go play in my little games where I did, I did view that, that I could actually beat them. And I think the truth, the same thing is true of investing, right? It's like, if you believe that you're a much better investor than you are, when actually you should just be indexing the market, right? You're, you're probably going to lose money. Now, that being said, finding sort of where your niche is and then making sure that you're learning from the best people and feeling like you can hang out with them and you can learn and you can interact with them. I think that that's all really good. But for anything that really, like, I don't want to think that I'm a world-class skier and because I'm really good on the bunny hill and then just go up to the black diamond, I'll die. Right. No, right? That, I mean, I, I think that that's, that's the example. issue. It's like, are you approaching it as I can hang with anybody in order to learn? And I, I understand the value of what their input is going to be. But then I also understand where I'm supposed to be performing. Like, I'm going to learn from the black diamond skiers, but I'm still going to stay on the bunny hill until I'm ready. So I think that's a, those are, those are, that's a little bit different. Yeah, no, it's interesting because then I would say like, like in the investing example or the poker example, at some point you have to say to yourself, okay, I'm going to learn something. I'm going to hang with the best, but I also have to be very careful about mitigating risk. Right. So, so for instance, with investing, um, someone like Warren Buffett might be able to put 20% of his portfolio into a single investment but a, a crucial role a, a good investor should follow in general is money management, put as small as you possibly can into any one of Actually, and in, in again, anecdotally, but the smaller percentage of your net worth you put into an investment or the small per percentage of your hedge fund you put into an investment, ironically, the more money you can make because there's less psych psychology behind it. So money management becomes critical in poker, critical in investing, and... So yes, you still have to mitigate risk. In, yeah, well, in I mean, that, that's actually a point that I make just in terms of in terms of the new book, in terms of how to decide. Is that I say you should approach your decisions the exact same way. There, it's a portfolio, right? It's just a portfolio problem. So you know, this is one of the reasons why I'm so into this idea of like keeping quitting in mind, for example, because it allows you to do a whole bunch of things in parallel and create a broader portfolio of the of, of decisions. So that if any one of those decisions actually doesn't work out very well, right, you're, you're actually positioned well across the portfolio in order to not uh, essentially get ruined and be able to take advantage of the information, whatever might be available, depends on obviously how much volatility there is in the world that you're deciding about, but uh, take whatever information that you're thinking about 
you know, and so again, like just going back to the dating versus marrying, if you try to analyze the crap out of that and you only go on one date a year, that bad date is going to have a huge devastating effect on you. But if you just go on, on a lot of dates, one bad date is going to matter very little. It's essentially just saying, look, your, your decisions are like a stock portfolio, right? It's like an investment portfolio. And, and the, more, the more iterations that you can get, the more that you can think about the ways that you can do those in parallel, the more that you can think in certain cases about, you know, avoiding autocorrelation, you know, and just, again, you should, you, there's a certain amount of kind of exploiting the things that are working for you that you should be doing, but you need to have this whole portfolio of just a bunch of crap. And yeah, just like try a bunch of stuff. And this becomes, I think, difficult to analyze statistically other than the idea of trying many things and experiment and this concept of experimenting. These are a little bit more ambiguous to define, but mm-hmm. the methodology works. <laughs> like yes. at least if someone's persistent with this methodology of, of making decisions by, you know, trying many different things and trying to analyze the, you know, the different outcomes and then the probability of each outcome. And like you say, building a portfolio of this, this methodology works, but you can't statistically model everybody who uses this methodology statistically does better. Oh, I, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, at least not yet. I mean, I completely agree with you. I don't know. I'd have to think about it more deeply in theory, whether you could. Well, it, dep- it depends on the domain too. Like if I'm trying to decide between, should I be a race car driver, a movie screenwriter, a professional investor, or, you know, a, a, a marketing director at Procter and Gamble, you're never going to be able to model. You, you could model. You could say this methodology works in general for people, but you could never say statistically you'll make better decisions in life. And I've analyzed this out with a computer and and so on. Yes, we know that people who do that do those kinds of things where they're actually trying those that stuff out, where they're willing to try more things. They they do do better, but. It, they do better like in some domains. And so you can extrapolate that to, to domaining in general, to learning in general. Like what right, but, I, but it's a skill, but, but the thing, I think that what you're trying to get at is, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that it's a, there's a meta skill, which is, yes. you know, what, what are the things that you should be experimental about and what, what aren't you? But I, I think that there are some heuristics that you can apply to that. So uh, one thing is that you can say, if it goes as bad as possible, how much of an effect does that have on me, right? And if the effect is really big, you might not want to get so experimental, right? If it's like a really bad, devastating effect that's kind of hard to undo, you wouldn't want to get very experimental. Like I don't want to experiment on like a black diamond run, right? I want to to sort of work my way up and figure out what are the things that I can do in between getting to the black diamond run that don't kill me. Um, That's one thing to think about. Another thing to think about is, that I've been thinking about recently is the difference between sort of what's the worst mistake, a false positive or a false negative. If the worst mistake is a false negative, you should be getting really experimental and just like, just try a whole bunch of stuff because the need to be able to, first of all, build better models of the world to recognize that you're, you're deciding with imperfect information. And so if a false negative is the worst mistake, the devastating effect of missing something would be to say no. Right. As opposed to say yes. You know, and then the other thing is, you know, is that given that we we there is this whole universe of stuff we don't know, um, leaning toward yes on these kinds of things is more likely to get you to find out the things that you don't know you don't know, which is the really, really important stuff. Right. Where you just it's like something you hadn't even considered and you get to find out. But it, it matters what type of decision you're facing. And that that's a lot, you know, part of what I talk about and how to decide is know what kind of decision 
that you're actually in front of and try to think about what the impact of getting it wrong is going to be. Because, right. you know, what, what is your ability to neutralize the decision? What's your ability to reverse it? What's your ability to do, do a whole bunch of stuff in parallel? That's just the portfolio issue, right? What's your ability to, to hedge against it? I mean, these are all really important questions as you try to figure out, is this something that I do want to do a whole bunch of exploration around, or is this something that I want to do a whole bunch of analysis around? You're right. So, so what, what I'm kind of trying to get at with this, with these, this idea of meta skills, and there's also correspondingly micro skills, but what I'm trying to get at is the difference between academic research on performance and self-betterment as opposed to experiential uh, knowledge of it. So which, what I really like about your books, The Thinking and Probabilities, and then this one, How to Decide, is that you have achieved and accomplished, so you've been through the life experience of having to get better in a difficult domain where there's competition. Competition's critical because you have people also who are trying to basically destroy you and annihilate you that you're up against in their training as well, as opposed to just experience or just academic analysis kind of trying to understand academically what happened to you in, in real life, I think is very interesting. And I, I kind of find with myself, whenever I try to get better at a different domain, I have to use the meta skills learned from prior domains or learn from reading and studying books like yours. And that helps me make these meta decisions better. Like, okay, this is how I'm going to learn. I'm going to take this new domain. I'm going to experiment a little bit. And by the way, to your point about kind of the cost of experimenting, this is well known for 200 years with the scientific method, is that an experiment should have low downside, infinite upside almost, or, or very you know, huge upside. And basically that, that just you're going to learn something from every experiment and that it's going to have low downside in the worst case and huge and, upside. And here's the, the, another key is that it should mostly fail because, because yeah. what you want is that when it succeeds, you want it to be high signal. Right, right. H- hence the high upside. Like if everything, you're, right. if every experiment results in in high that you do results in high upside, you won't have time actually to, to <laughs> do a, anything because you're just going to be succeeding all the time. Right. Exactly. So yeah, I mean, I think that that's. I, I think that hopefully th- this is you. This comes through in in both of the books. Um, you know, just because of my weird path, I think about the the way that the scientific literature has a conversation with my, you know, poker and this kind of real world, very high stakes, very competitive. People are trying to annihilate you, as you said. Fast decision-making, really understanding things like how much does it matter whether you're winning or losing in terms of your decision-making? How do you figure out when you're supposed to quit? That's a really hard one, actually, in poker. Um, uh, quit a game, I mean. Well, or I guess quit poker in general, but but more but, just but quit a quit, game or quit a hand. When are you quit supposed a hand to fold? Is hard. Right. When are you supposed to fold? How do you actually uh, look back and try to figure out what is there to learn from a hand of poker when whether you won or lost a hand is actually quite low signal. You know, you it's, it's like after fifteen hundred hours, you you know quite a bit. But, you know, after one hour, it's actually quite hard to parse that out. And how do, you, how do you actually get down into the decision process and start to explore those decision trees and particularly the counterfactuals? What would have happened if I had done X? What would have happened if I had done Y? What would have happened if James had had a different hand? Whatever it is. And then think about that problem and the way that that actually creates a really interesting conversation between poker and 
and the scientific literature, the cognitive science literature, the behavioral economics literature, the organizational psychology literature to kind of see like, how are they informing each other? And I, I live in the space between those two things because I'm an academic and I do academic research. And, you know, obviously I was a poker player and I think they're just really fertile ground because I agree with you. It's, it's like just looking at poker isn't going to teach you to be a great decision maker. Um, there, there are pecul peculiarities of poker, for example, the fact that you have to do everything really fast, right? So what happens when you slow things down, right? Like, but you can take lessons from that. It can inform those kinds of decisions. When I think about uh, the literature around like prospect theory, for example, and uh, you know, loss aversion, you can see it so clearly playing out at the poker table that it becomes quite informative for understanding that literature and helping right. you to sort of refine the way that you might be thinking about it, for example. So that's, that's just where I love to live is in between the two things, the more theoretical world, the more academic world, the more experimental world. Um, scientific experiments, meaning, and then, and then this, this very practical real world decision-making problem. Yeah. Because I mean, I don't know how much uh, the academic research informed your book, how to decide, but you know, this, this book that we're talking about how to decide, I find it to be an extremely, you, you, you explain an extremely useful meta skill that can be applied to any domain for making decisions. And even if people don't accurately follow it, it's, good enough to keep improving at something you want to make better and better decisions at, whether it's dating or poker or investing or entrepreneurship, chess, comedy, whatever. You know, the only thing I ever get worried about is sometimes the academic research is always clean and looks great. And again, like here, you know, Anders Ericsson's example with the 10,000 hour rule is, is, is a great example where I think people could get trapped into a form of analysis paralysis, trying to decide, do I want to get better at this, it's going to cost me 10,000 hours. It's too much reliance on the academic research instead of reliance on my own ability to learn meta skills quickly, which might be, you know, and I say me in the general me, but you know, each person's own ability to learn meta skills quickly or micro skills quickly and, and to, ex to learn about experimenting and how to structure experiments in a new domain. And that completely does away with the 10,000 hour rule to some extent. So the 10,000 yeah. hour is a useful model, but it's not, you shouldn't live your life by any of the academic theories. You should get better at the practical stuff, learning from the academic theories. So I, yeah, I, I kind of want to make a separation though. And I, I, cause I think this is true of grit as well, is that a lot of times the kind of popular translations of the academic work are misleading, anodyne, unnuanced, you know, I, when you look at sort of, the, you know, the science of grit, for example, like nobody's saying that just because you're gritty at something, you're going to succeed, right? Just as an example. Um, you know, obviously there's, it depends on the activity. There's some things that you can get much better at much more quickly. There's some things that you could never, you could put 10,000 hours in and like literally never succeed at it. Um, there's in the same way that like some people are tall and some people are short. And uh, I'm a woman who's five, five, it doesn't matter how many hours I put into becoming a, uh, an a NBA player. superstar. Like I'm just, it doesn't matter. I can't do it. I could put in 10,000 hours into trying to become a great pianist. And I can tell you, it's not going to happen, right? I'm just bad. So, 
Um, look, look at that fixed mindset there. I don't know. <laughs> no, trust me. I did. I took a year of piano lessons. I know a little bit about my piano mm-hmm. skills. No, I mean, I'm tone deaf. It's just like, it's ridiculous. I just don't, musical talent is, I enjoy listening to music, but uh, producing music is not in my wheelhouse. I, and part of this is like, everybody says like, you have to figure out where am I going to spend the time? What is the payoff at the end of it for me? Is it within? And then the other thing is like, what's your goal, right? I I put 10,000 hours into tennis. I'm not expecting to go to Wimbledon. I'm expecting to keep improving and become better and be able to be competitive. And I don't want to play like what you call country club tennis, which is like pitsy patsy. Like I really want to hit the ball, right? So like I have a different, a different idea of what my goal is there. But I think that a lot of times, and I see this all the time, when you see scientific literature, which is like super nuanced which is actually thinking about all these different ways that you can think about something translated into sort of what the popular interpretation of it is. I think that you lose, you lose that nuance because people like black and white answers. They like things to be yes and no. And then what happens is that that can cause us to go back and say, well, that, that science is bad. But it's like the science isn't bad. It's the, the interpretation of the science that's bad. So like one of the examples that I saw of this, it was, well, first of all, there's a great Twitter account that everybody should follow, which is just called in mice. That's it. In I-N-M-I-C-E? Yeah, it's just in mice. And essentially what it does is, you know, you'll see these things which are like, um, you know, bacon will cause cancer. And when you actually read it, it's like, it doesn't, it's not even studied in a human. And so there's a Twitter account that just says in mice. Every time that that happens, it just tweets the article out and says in mice. Um, wow, that, that's, this is really great. Again, this only has like 51 followers. So nobody's, nobody know. actually knows about this. It's a great, it's a great Twitter account. It just is in mice. That's it. That's all it ever says. It's in mice. Um, because it's letting you know that I saw an article once. I can't remember. It was like on, you know, CNBC or something like that, which was uh, eating fish makes your kids smarter. So then I went and I looked at the actual source research. And it was like, there was essentially a correlation between eating fish, sleeping, and IQ, I think it was something like that, IQ or, or grades or some, some, something that had to do with performance. And I was like, oh my God, I could have written 17 different headlines for that. Uh, intelligent parents feed their children fish and make sure they sleep a lot. Sleeping makes you hungry for fish. Eating fish makes you sleep more, right? Smart, smart kids like fish. Smart kids sleep a lot. I mean, it's, you know, so, so you'll see this thing where, where the translation of it is into something so incredibly simple. And, you know, this is, this is part of the problem that I have with, with political conversation is that, that you, the nuance is just lost and everything has to be a simple message. And I think part of that just has to do with, you know, we, we know this work in processing fluency, that the easier it is for somebody to understand a message, the more true they think it feels, the more attachment they get to the message, the easier it is for them to recall, the more it's going to stick. So you can't sit there and go, well, there's this really interesting study that showed all these really cool correlations between all these things, but we have no idea of what the causality is. Here are some possibilities. Like, no, who's going to read that? Yeah, no, and, and on top of it, a lot of papers, even no matter how good the academic, a lot of papers are just statistically wrong. So, you know, like, you know, there was, there's, there's a famous study on is college better for your income versus not going to college? Right. And they determine after 30 years, you'll have an extra half a million dollars net worth if you went to college versus if you didn't go to college, some outrageous statistic like that. But 
that that's meaningless to people trying to decide whether to go to college now. That because thirty years right. that means they did that study on people who graduated in, in nineteen ninety. Which by the way, they, they they also found with that that um, again, not being you know the nuance, all of that difference was driven by the top tier universities. Yeah, I'm sure that was where all all the difference was. Did you go to Harvard, basically? Again, but this was like my kids quote me these studies because their high school counselors quote them these studies because some convention quoted those studies to the high school counselors, and so that that's just all I get nervous about is uh, when. You know, because I've talked to, you know, I've had a thousand podcasts and I've talked to academics, I've talked to practitioners, I'm, I'm both to some extent. And so it's just, it's just something I'm always careful of. I, yeah, so, so and, and I think this comes back to, it's, it's not just like the, again, I think it has to do with like, what's the understanding of what science is, right? So if you do a study like that, where you show that there's a correlation between income 30 years later and you, where you went to college, that's a study, you know, the way that science proceeds is that that then creates more questions that then other people are going to answer. I'm putting this out into this whole thing with, you know, Mertonian scientific method. I put it out there and then people can start to pick that apart and kind of think about what would that mean? I think that most science is not trying to be prescriptive, right? Somebody does that study and nobody, the, the scientists aren't saying, so therefore you should go to college. It's like, oh, here's kind of an interesting correlation. Do what you want with it. But then the journalists pick it up and they're like, study says you should go to college if you want to earn more money. And it's like, that's not at all. The researchers did not say that in any way. You know, and you go back and you read the research and they're like, oh, they didn't say that in any way. <laughs> you know, and they, they, they actually talk about the nuances. And, um, you know, it's part of what peer review is, is that peer reviewers will say, okay, but, you know, what happens in the short run or, uh, did you, you know, what happens to X or Y or whatever? And, you know, I think it's why I appreciate a lot of the more, the, like a book like Range from David Epstein, where it is a much deeper dive that's much truer to the science, right? I really appreciate these books that are really trying to translate that science in a way that it's sort of exploring, like, what could this mean? Right. And, and, but I will, I will say also about range. One of the things I appreciate about it also is that David Epstein, the author is a practitioner. So right. he's not just talking about, Oh, you can, if you are good at one thing and you put 3000 hours in and you're good at another thing, you put 1000 hours in and you combine them, it's like 10,000 hours. He was a geologist slash scientist, but also a sports writer and combining the two to be able to write about the science of sports that allowed him essentially to skip the line and become the youngest columnist for Sports Illustrated. And so I appreciate that as a, a, a practitioner, how he's able to kind of understand the science from a point of view of, oh yeah, this is what happened to me and it's reflected properly in the science. Right, well, and I, and I think that that's so important. And, you know, I mean, to that point, I think that's some of the issues that I have with Malcolm Gladwell is that he's translating incredibly complicated topics into super, super simple messages. And, you know, and it takes a moment of reflection to realize that 10,000 hours doesn't cause success, right? That there, as you said, as you were thinking about investing, like where we kind of started the conversation around poker and investing, as you start to sort of dive into it, you feel like, oh, wait, but how big is the stage, right? And how many people are in the audience? 
and, uh, you know, how much have they had to drink and how much, like all this other stuff, like, are they Republicans or Democrats in the audience? Like all of this stuff that you start to realize, wait, no, there's this whole world of nuance. It's like, the, it depends on the activity, it depends on the person going into the activity. It depends on, you know, what the learning loops are that you can create, it, you know, so on and so forth. Like it doesn't take me 10,000 hours to become a tic-tac-toe expert. It's literally one second of thinking about tic-tac-toe, you realize, oh, there, well, there has to be nuance. Yeah, and it, it's so fascinating in every domain. Again, I always say every domain that's worth learning because this is where, and you could define it as, you know, 20 levels of skill or there's 50 micro skills or whatever. However you define this, this is an activity that's uh, interesting and complicated. But like, it's just fascinating the, as you discover more and more variables in something like, comedy, say, for instance. So you have to see who, how many men are there with girlfriends because a man won't laugh. And this is a variable no one's going to know unless they've done comedy like a thousand times. Men will very quickly look at their girlfriend before they laugh. Because oh, yeah, that makes sense. I would <laughs> never, I, it totally makes sense once you say, I love things like that that are like so obvious once you say it, but I would never think about that. Yeah, it's like sometimes it's just a microsecond and sometimes it just happens once because then they get the cue that, oh, okay, she's cool about this and that. And But you could also tell, you know, how long they've been dating, so how long it matters, whether she laughs or not. But Because the, there's even nuance, sub-nuances within yeah, that. Yeah, but like on the first date, on the first date, they're going to be like, okay, wait, let me see. Like the, the de- And I've seen it happen. The date is over if he laughs and she doesn't. Like that's the <laughs> end of the date. So, and and you know, and part of it you could tell by... And, and again, all these are noises. You could tell by how many inches they are sitting apart from each other. And a, a rule of thumb that I've just developed for myself is that for every inch they are sitting apart, that's how many years they've been together. So if they're sitting very close or if their legs are touching or their hands are touching, obviously they're first dating. If they're sitting on the opposite sides of the table, you could make fun of one completely and the other would laugh because they like their spouse being made fun of and uh yeah. you know whatever so so it just gives you different ranges it's just like on poker you you when you when when you're asking yourself should i if someone makes a bet against you that's that's a, a threatening bet you think to yourself what are the range of possibilities they have and it's the same thing in the audience what are the range of jokes you could tell for this audience based on all of these different nuances and based on what you've seen. Yes, I imagine before. it's quite difficult, different if you're in front of like evangelical Christians, your range might get narrower <laughs> in terms of the jokes that you can tell versus, you know. I, um, I, I always ask myself, and I, and I don't have any jokes for this really, but I always ask myself, can this audience, and this is going to sound extreme, but can this audience be told a joke about abortion? And because that will tell you the, the range of jokes. If they right. absolutely can't, that puts you in a different category than if they can't. Not that I have an abortion joke waiting to go, like that I'm dying to tell. No, but it's, but it's a good way to think about like, particularly as you sort of delve in. I mean, a lot of jokes are obviously poking around at things that get into the moral realm. So I think that's what that's kind of getting for, to you, right? Like how much am I allowed to kind of be like poking around and breaking norms? Yeah, I assume that's, that's kind of what that's answering for you. Yeah, and also the, the you know this year in particular, the Trump Biden thing has become very complicated because you know typical audience doesn't believe this, but there are going to be about fifty fifty Trump Biden, like the entire country is. But most people think everybody's for Biden and and, and or or everybody's for Trump. So there's a huge bias. 
you, you ever notice that people who like Trump, they assume Trump's going to win the election because the polls are all wrong and everybody loves Biden, thinks Biden's going to have, there's going to be a blue wave in the Senate. And it, it, you refer to this a lot in, in how to decide that decisions are influenced a lot by biases. And the one question I have for you is, okay, there's a lot of different biases, like in, in particular hindsight bias, like, and this is, or outcome bias where, oh, I made a decision and it worked out really well, so I must be a genius. And so that's kind of this outcome bias. And, you know, Daniel Kahneman, who came up with all these cognitive biases, he would say that you can't really learn to overcome your biases. But I sort of disagree with that. I sort of feel, and I'm curious what you think. If you're, and I, I think I know where you are based on what you say in this book, but if you're aware of the biases, that if you're just aware of the definition of the biases, you're much more likely to kind of catch yourself with them. So if you're aware of the definition of the biases, you're much more likely to end up with a biased decision. Yeah. Yeah. But, but. So like, so like for instance, I won't let myself decide who's going to win the election because I might but be that's biased. Different. So that, but that's different. So, so let me explain. So there's a difference between figuring out how to set up guardrails around the biases, which you need to understand what the biases are in order to be able to do versus on the fly, you make a decision hmm. and then you kind of look back at it. Right. So when you, there's something called bias blind spot, which is just what's your, what are your blind spots to your own biases? Like as you come to conclusions, how, how good are you at spotting when confirmation bias might be at play, for example. And it just turns out that people who know about more about bias have bigger blind spots to that kind of stuff. I think partly because, um, because they're aware of it, they get the sense that then they don't do it. Right. Like it's, it's kind of intuitive that way. Mm. That's okay. Right. That, that's well, so, fine. So, so they're aware of it. So they think that, uh, that they're better equipped to not do it. Exactly. Which is what I was kind of just trying to say. Right. But, but, but here's the sense. thing, but that's, but that's okay. Because the, what, what Kahneman will tell you is that whether it comes to bias or noise in your decision-making, which is the inconsistencies and, you know, you'll make a decision on Monday and the same information on Tuesday afternoon, you'll come to a different conclusion, which is not great. Um, that there, you can set up guardrails around it. And that, that's essentially what this book is offering. Like when I'm talking about decision tools, I'm saying these things are going to get you to a more consistent process that's going to give you a more accurate output. So as an example, if we think about hindsight bias, right? Like actually taking the time to say, well, let me actually list out what are the things that were known and that I knew at the time. And then I have to like check on those things to make sure that those things are true. So I actually go through the example and I'll tell you a very funny story about it. So, you know, I talk about this, the, the sort of the way that people have processed what happened with Hillary Clinton in 2016. Oh yeah. That was a good chapter. Yeah. And you know, this is sort of a resulting end of hindsight bias story. So she loses Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, quite unexpected. And everybody says it's a mistake, right? I mean, to this day, like everybody's just like, that was a mistake. That was stupid. And first of all, that's just resulting, right? Like she got a bad result. That doesn't mean that the decision process about where she was going to spend campaign money and her time was a mistake. The way that you would figure out actually whether it was a mistake is to go back and look and see if people were really pointing this out at the time. Because you, this is this knowledge tracking, right? What was known beforehand? What were the inputs in that, to that decision? Because unless I understand that, I can't actually figure out what that decision tree looked like in terms of that resource allocation to try to figure out whether the, it was a reasonable decision or not. So you go back and you can, you can look, you can just Google it. 
Um, and you can say, did people notice that there was a polling error? Because the, the one fact that we know is that you can't put there was a polling error in the beforehand knowledge. That has to be in the after the fact knowledge because you can't know there's a polling error until the vote's been taken. By the way, there might not have been a polling error because there's some things were beyond margin of error, but margin of error is just yeah. There was there was a lot of stuff that was in the margin of error. It does turn out that there was a polling error, which we know in retrospect, which is white non-college voters were being undersampled in those three states. Mm -hmm. I would like to point out though that even if you thought maybe there was a polling error, you can't predict the direction because Texas had an equally large polling error, but it went in Clinton's favor, Mm -hmm. right? So I mean, you know, but we don't remember that, right? Because she lost the elections. We're not looking at that, right? Um, Virginia actually had quite a large polling error in Clinton's favor. So, you know, polling errors happen, but you don't really know them at the time. And it's, you can make some predictions about them, but it's hard because it's not clear would it go, whose favor would it go in. And it's true right now, like there may be a polling error in Pennsylvania, but it may be in Biden's favor. We don't know. He's from Scranton, whatever. So, um, so that's number one. Then number two, you can say, well, but maybe people, maybe data analysts are smart enough or political observers are smart enough to look at that and say, even though the vote hasn't been taken, I think there's a really big problem with the polling. And actually, uh, they should be totally ch- ch- changing their campaign strategy and get the hell out of Arizona and North Carolina and get their butts into the Rust Belt, right? But uh, there's crickets. Like you just can't find any articles of people arguing this. In fact, there's people arguing the opposite, which is why is, why is Trump even bothering with Pennsylvania? He should be spending his time in Florida. So now you can see, so there's resulting, which is I'm saying this is a mistake because I know that she lost. And then Um, Then you add into it this hindsight bias problem, which is that people believe they knew it at the time. Hmm. And what's really interesting about it is that despite the fact that I can produce the Google results, I can produce the complete lack of evidentiary record that anybody knew this. I had three different editors at major newspapers reject it because they claimed that they knew it at the time. And I said, you're an editor at a major newspaper. If you knew it at the time, why didn't you print it? Because that would have been a clickable article. It would have gone viral. Everybody would have read your nice contrarian take. So you literally had the ability to say what you say that you knew and you still didn't say it. And then one person produced an article which was a voter in Wisconsin complaining that Hillary Clinton hadn't been there, which of course is not even germane. To the to the issue right. of whether people spotted a polling error, but it's so strong that even people who worked at at places where they could have printed these things in the pages of the places they worked still were completely convinced that they knew about it at the time. So so how do you solve how do you solve for that? I need them to go do do the search themselves. I need them to actually write down, what did we know at the time? What did we know after the time? Is it reasonable? Like I can sit down with that person. Is it reasonable that the one article you found was a voter complaining that Hillary Clinton hadn't come said hi, right? Which I'm sure everybody in California is complaining about as well. So, so right? but, you, but you, you make a great point right now. They need to do the research themselves. So like no matter how much I would have known about outcome, you know, resulting or hindsight bias or whatever. So the very first time I sold a company in the nineties, made millions of dollars, thought I was a super genius because of the result, even though there was a huge luck factor, you know, there was an internet boom at the time because I was thinking I was a genius. I proceeded to lose all my money and a bunch of investments like within a year afterwards. 
But now that I've been through that, every time I sell a business again, I'm so paranoid that I'm going to lose money. I'm much more careful about not thinking I'm a genius about it. So again, is that a way to overcome these biases is just by experiencing these things? Or am I now biased towards thinking I'm stupid? Or maybe now I'm biased thinking I'm smart because I think I'm stupid all the time. Yeah. So I, I think that's why that's why I offer these tools. The, the key is to get to an objective, to get to an objective place and to realize that the best way to get to an objective place is to get to the outside view. So the inside view is what you're talking about. It's like my own experiences are informing what I think and what I do. I have certain mental models that I sort of apply to everything, right? I mean, this is kind of how our minds work, right? Uh, when I look at particular data, like you can see this with something like gun control data, right? Like so somebody who believes in gun control will look at the data and say, now I believe in it more. And somebody who uh, doesn't believe in gun control will look at the exact same data and say, now I believe in it more. Um, and that's because they're being informed by their own frameworks and what they believe to be true of the world. So you have to develop a decision process that causes you to get outside of that point of view. That and that's naturally going to get you to apply more than one mental model to the problem that you're looking at because you're going to have to interact with other ones. It's going to cause you to explore that, that sort of universe of stuff that you don't know in a completely different way um, and in a more objective way. And it's going to cause you to naturally be open-minded to what other people's points of view are. So, you know, and there's three ways to do it. Let me try to figure out what's true of the world. Let me go find some base rates. It's really good. What's, right? what, so you what could have said, base so base rates would be, um, for example, if you make an investment in a particular type of company, you know, you obviously think that you have some special knowledge about that company and that obviously your taste is amazing because you just won all this money um, in the lottery of the internet in the 1990s, right? But if you went and looked and, and you said for this particular type of company, let's say it's a startup, for this particular type of company in this particular space, what's the failure rate within three years, right? So you can look at that and you can see, oh my gosh, you know, 90% of companies in this space don't even exist after three years. That just disciplines your own optimism, right? It, it says, okay, let, this is what's actually true of the world. This is the rate at which this thing happens in general. And then I can sort of think about how can I toggle off that number? It gives you the appropriate anchor to toggle yeah, off of. I see what you're saying. So instead of saying, okay, well, 80% of these businesses fail, so I better not try it. It just gives you a base to say, well, what is my unique advantage versus the people who fall into the 80 or the 20% side of this equation? That, that's number one. And number two, it tells, you, it tells you that you should make a lot of small investments instead of one big one. Right. Right. So it's, it's fine. Right. Like you, 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 hopefully you're a better picker than the market and you can figure out how much of a better picker. And the thing is that if there's a 20% failure rate and you can pick things that fail at an 18% rate, you're going to make a lot of money. That's way better than the market. Right. So you don't need to talk. You want to be at the appropriate anchor, but then that also tells you, I shouldn't make three big investments. Right. I need to make, I need to make many, many, many smaller investments. Right, right. But now I'm thinking in terms of like whether you should invest it. So, so one type of investment is, of course, being an entrepreneur, investing in yourself, which is an investment of time and money. And, and it's significant because it, it crowds out other activities. And this is related to all these biases, but I, I call it specifically smoking crack bias. Like everybody I know who, who starts a business typically smokes crack about their idea. Like they think 
Their business is the best thing ever. It's the next Google. There's the sky's the limit. And you can't tell them otherwise because of they're, they're biased. And so I wonder if this is considered a guardrail. So for me, I, I literally ask all the time, am I smoking crack? Am I smoking crack? Yeah. Like, like if there's 7 billion people on this planet, why am I the one blessed with this amazing idea? And I'll go so far as to look at, like if it's a software company I'm starting, I will read the resumes of all the developers of all the competitors just to try to understand why they have not developed this one thing that I'm developing. So, so yeah, so, I, so I that's paranoid. actually that's actually one of the types of guardrails that I include in the the book, which is this kind of checklisting, right? What are the things that I need to be thinking about? What are the things that I need to input? What are the things that I need to worry about? Uh, what are the ways that this could go wrong? If I imagine I, I failed in a year, why? Mm. Right? And and um, creating those checklists of like I know when I'm in it that I'm going to, things are going to get distorted. So when I'm not in it, let me try to think about what is the information that I need to go gather? Whose perspectives would it be really good for me to go talk to? Let me actually try to do, make sure that I'm doing a premortem and trying to figure out if this failed, why would that be? Let me do a backcast if it succeeded, why would that be? And th this all just makes it so that you're doing less of the decision-making when you have skin in the game already and more in advance of actually having started down a path. It, when you're in a more logical mind, right? Because we can all see that other people are smoking crack, but it's hard for us to see that in ourselves. So if you include that in your process, you're going to be a lot better off. And let me, I just, the thing I want to be clear about is that the, I, I get this question all the time, but then wouldn't you never start a company? And the answer is, of course you would, because when you look at the upside potential of it actually succeeding, for a lot of people, that payoff is worthwhile, even though the failure rate is really high. But what this is going to do is that if, if you can toggle that success rate based on developing a better product, creating a, a stronger moat, making sure that the product market fit is better, making sure that people actually like the thing that you're developing early on so that maybe you can pivot and change it so that people will like it better, all of those things, then that's actually going to create the success. But that, that requires that you go into it understanding, I understand I'm mostly gonna fail. And now I'm just gonna be completely single-minded and trying to find all the ways that I'm gonna fail and make sure that I'm not doing those, that I'm not doing those things, that I'm creating the best product, that I'm create that I, and then I'm using a process that's actually gonna get me to success the most. Right. Like it's like what I always tell uh, starting entrepreneurs is that the job of an entrepreneur is not to take risks but to actually mitigate risks. So lots of people come up with good ideas, but then success is often determined, like you said, by coming up, what you're saying with your checklist is my way of saying, okay, every day reduce risk, reduce risk, reduce risk. Like ha come up with more and more ways to reduce risk because I might not know the whole checklist in advance. Right, and then also, right, exactly. And then also kind of back to the beginning to really understand that you don't know more about the thing that you're creating than the people who are going to use the thing you're creating. And I That's think that this point. is a really big problem, right? Is that you go in and you fall, you're smoking crack about whatever it is that you're developing in your product. And it's generally not until too late that you find out that people don't, there's a reason why nobody developed it. Sometimes you found a hole that people haven't seen, but sometimes there's a big, re there's a reason why no one developed it. So how can you actually find that out quickly enough? Well, that requires that you step back and say, 
what is the information that I could find out today that would help me to understand whether this is actually something reasonable or not? And it's not going to be by doing thought experiments. Right. It's never by, that's the thing. It's never by thought experiments. It's always doing something. And a lot of this is so you do something to develop that outside view that you talk about. So you get out of your inside view where you think, oh my gosh, this is a great idea. And you start to build an outside perspective, an outside view. Yeah. I mean, how many, how many times have you heard entrepreneurs say things like, well, they just don't get it, but they, this is a really good thing. Like they, they just don't understand what it is that I'm making. Every half hour. Right. And it's like, okay, uh, well, either explain it better or there's a reason they don't get it. It's because you're the one who's wrong. Right. I mean, the, the, the thing is that like the minute that you put the, the, an iPhone in your hand, everybody gets it. It's like, oh yes, this is solving a pain point for me. No. And, and, and look, what I, I, and, and because I know you're, you're sensitive to time here, I just want to say that all of this is the type of thinking and reasoning and rational reasoning that is going, that goes into this book. This is such a great book for building mental models on, on decisions. Like I like how you define the two forms of uncertainty, which we've spoken at both in, about both in this conversation, imperfect information and luck. So in poker, imperfect information is you don't know what, what's in the hand of the other person. And luck is you might get lucky the on the card. Yeah, the dealer yeah. is the luck and the other player has imper- information. I like uh, the, these three Ps, uh, preferences, payoffs, and probabilities. So uh, do what you want, but then also analyze what's the possible payoff, what's the possible downside, and what are the probabilities of all the different outcomes that could happen in doing what, what you want to do. And you have tons of these models that are very easy to understand. It's based on, again, both your experiences and the research and you have references and sources for all the research. And I just thought this was really great. It got me so excited because I think all the time, and particularly this is important in this day and age, there are so many more decisions being made right now Mm -hmm. than in other years because 55 million Americans applied for unemployment insurance in the past six months. They're all deciding what they want to do for the rest of their lives and how to decide and then how to learn if they decide to do something new these are going to be critical things that weren't as critical before. Right. And, and so a book like this, I think going to be, is really valuable. And I think this is also a great sequel to your prior book, Thinking and Probabilities, which we talked about a, a few years ago. You know, and again, I think understanding how to build these guardrails around cognitive biases, like you use the example, 90% of all drivers think they're above the 50% level in driving, which is of course mathematically impossible. I always like to remind myself, um, I know I'm the one in 10 that's the worst, but right. uh, it doesn't really comfort me for other biases, but uh, at least I know that. So, so I do want to say this is a, a great book. I really recommend it. I'm so glad you, you came on the podcast and, and I know the conversation went all over, but hey, more, the more of them- Can learn. I just say though, that it was fun for me because uh, you know, I end up talking to a lot of people where it's straight down the middle following the order of the book. And this was like much more exploratory about like the type of thinking that's actually informing the book. Like what, what am I, how am I trying to get people to think about problems? Right. Because this isn't like, how do you decide what job to take where I'm giving you like the five point plan for getting a great job, which, you know, I mean, obviously that, that kind of thing maybe has its place. Not, not, not for me, but 
this is more how how do you think about your thinking? How do you think about your decisions? Right. How do you develop a really good toolkit that you can sort of pull out and apply? What are the different mental models that you can be approaching decisions through? How do you think about the way that you interact with information? And when you think about the difference between luck and 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 hidden information, which are those two sources of uncertainty, luck is something that you can't actually do anything about. You know, despite people saying like I make my own luck, that's just an absurd statement. I can't make the dealer deal a particular card. Like it's it just is. That's not to say that you don't have to see luck. You don't have to know how much luck is going to influence the outcome. You certainly do have to have a good eye on that. And that's a little bit what base rates are going to help you with, right? And, and by the way, your book, Thinking and Probabilities, also helps to deal with luck over the long term. Right, exactly. But it's the hidden information part. It's that we're deciding behind the veil of ignorance or a partial veil of ignorance that what we know fits on the head of a pin and what we don't know is like the size of the universe. And if we don't get better at that thing, if we don't figure out how can we go explore that universe of stuff we don't know in a more objective way so that the inputs in our decisions are just like higher quality so that we can improve the quality of the beliefs that are informing our decisions, it doesn't really matter what you build on top of that. The foundation sucks. So this book is really about how, what is your approach to information? How are you thinking about what other people think? How are you thinking about information that comes across your path? How are you applying that to the decisions that you're making so that you can make higher quality decisions. And I think also you mentioned it briefly, but then it also runs throughout the book, the, the themes of it, analysis paralysis, where you spend too many minutes deciding what TV show to watch or where to go to, to eat and stuff like that. I think things like the checklists that you recommend are good for those. And also just being aware of how you spend your time yeah. so you can reduce the analysis paralysis. There's a lot of good suggestions for things that people don't even realize are problems in their, in their daily lives. Well, thank you. Annie Duke, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost.